You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. I'm Juliet Walker, the BMJ's assistant web editor. This week, Duncan Jarvis looks at some of the stories published on bmj.com. The first is about the use of the SSRI antidepressants in combination with the drug tamoxifen. For some time, there have been concerns about prescribing them together, and a new study finally quantifies that. Well, we found that using paroxetine, using that antidepressant with tamoxifen, increased the risk of death due to breast cancer. Also this week, Duncan talks to Clyde Hertzman about giving children the best start in life. A child's early years have an effect on the rest of their life, not only in terms of medical outcome, but also social and educational. Clyde talks about what governments are and should be doing to help build a solid foundation. I think that there's going to be a shift and uh, it will be possible in more free market oriented societies for there to be stronger programs and services in the early years. But before all that, I'm joined by Berta Twisselman, who's here with the news. So Berta, tell me, what's caught your eye this week? Well, three stories. The first is Fair Society, Healthy Lives. The second, um, India is to train non-medical rural healthcare providers. And the third um, is about the fact that most medical schools in the US lack rules on ghostwriting. Okay, so tell me about the first story. The first story relates to an evidence-based review on tackling health inequalities in England over the next years, which the UK government commissioned. Sir Michael Marmot led the review. And what were the aims of the review? The aims are to improve health and well-being for all and to reduce health inequalities. And what did he conclude? Um, Well, he's quoted as saying, the human and economic costs of inaction are simply too high. He recommends that more money should be spent on ensuring a high quality of early child development to create a fairer society and reduce health inequalities. So this seems fairly ambitious. So who's actually responsible for taking his ideas forward? Well, he's tasking all departments, not just the health sector, with uh, working towards a fairer society, and everyone's policies should be informed by evidence-based interventions. Okay, great. Thanks, Berta. Tell me more about your second story. Uh, Well, the second news item is from India, where the government has just signalled its intention to introduce a new medical education programme to train rural healthcare providers for village health centres where doctors are unavailable. So these are medically trained people who are not doctors. So what are the numbers or percentages of doctors practising in India? Well, it seems that um, the country's 300 medical colleges produce some 34,000 doctors each year, but 25,000 of those either enter postgraduate training or leave the country. And uh, about 2,500 of India's nearly 25,000 primary health care centres function without doctors. So graduates from the new course are planned to be deployed to primary health centres and to 146,000 village village health sub-centres. And what will the graduates be expected to deliver? Well, they're expected to be competent in about 60% of the skills possessed by graduates from the standard course in modern medicine. They will have to practice exclusively in rural areas for at least five years after graduation. And tell me about your last story. Oh, the last story comes from a report that has just been published in PLOS Medicine. And according to this, 
Only 10 out of the top 50 medical schools in the US explicitly prohibit ghostwriting. So what actually is ghostwriting? Ghostwriting refers to the practice whereby a paper written by a drug company or communications agency, or indeed any other organisation with an agenda, is presented to an academic for their signature and to create the impression that the academic is actually the author and to give greater authority to the paper in question. Okay, and so is ghostwriting a big problem then? Well, the authors of the report say it's one of the most pressing problems in evidence-based medicine. You know, putting your name to a paper that you haven't actually written or participated in. And so what do they suggest can be done about this? Okay, the authors propose that from the next academic year, medical schools should adopt the authorship policy of the International Committee of Medical Journal Editors, which lays out in detail who counts as an author and who doesn't. They emphasise that reported authorship is essential for research integrity and violating any of the rules is considered research misconduct akin to plagiarism or falsification of data. Yes, indeed. So it sounds as though we'll be hearing much more about this in the future. I think so. Thanks, Berta. Now Duncan finds out about antidepressants and tamoxifen. So I'm joined now by David Jurlink, who is a clinical pharmacologist and internist at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre uh, over in Toronto. Now David and his colleagues have written a paper that's going online this week on bmj.com looking at the use of SSRI antidepressants and tamoxifen uh, in conjunction. So David, what was it that made you want to investigate that? Uh, We've known for a long time, really about two decades now, that tamoxifen um, is a prodrug. And what we mean by that is it's a drug that doesn't have a whole lot of benefit on its own, it has to first be converted by the liver to its active form, and that that form goes by the name endoxifen. We suspected now for many years that certain drugs could interfere with that process, the step that converts tamoxifen into endoxifen, knowing that peroxetine in particular is a potent inhibitor of that step, and that it's often co-prescribed with tamoxifen led us to try and quantify, I think for the first time, really quantify whether or not this theoretical drug interaction that's been the subject of much debate uh, is actually associated with harm in women taking tamoxifen for breast cancer. What did you do to try and quantify that? We have access to healthcare data on the entire Ontario population, which is about 13 million people going back to the early 1990s. And so for this study, What we did is we studied uh, just over 2,400 women who uh, had breast cancer and were started on tamoxifen for breast cancer and were also receiving, with the tamoxifen, uh, a single SSRI antidepressant. And we linked those data at the individual patient level to the Ontario Cancer Registry. And that allowed us to identify deaths from breast cancer. And then all we did was for each antidepressant, we asked, does combining this drug with tamoxifen influence the risk of dying from breast cancer? And if it does, what's the nature of that relationship? And uh, what did you find there then? Well, we found that using paroxetine, which is a, a particularly potent and irreversible inhibitor of this 
enzyme that turns tamoxifen into its metabolite. Using that antidepressant with tamoxifen increased the risk of death due to breast cancer and uh, interestingly it did it in a fashion that correlated with the degree of overlap and so another way of saying that is that um, you know the more of your time on tamoxifen you spent on paroxetine the greater your future risk uh, of breast uh, cancer death and this is all consistent with the notion that paroxetine can can effectively turn off the 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 benefits of tamoxifen Mm -hmm. Just to give you some context, you know, the average patient in our study had about a 41% overlap, and you would need to treat about 20 women in that way to result in one additional death due to breast cancer. If, if instead you had a complete overlap, that, in other words, someone with four or five years of tamoxifen who had taken paroxetine for the entire time, mm-hmm. Uh, we estimate that you'd need to treat um, about seven people that way uh, to cause one additional death um, from breast cancer. So what's this going to mean for practice? For patients, um, I, I suspect some patients are likely to be alarmed by those patients who are taking paroxetine and, and tamoxifen. The wrong thing for patients to do is to suddenly stop their paroxetine. Mm-hmm. Um, I think patients who are on this drug combination should should probably talk with their physicians and it's my you know I don't want to make um, sweeping recommendations for patients who aren't mine but I think that in someone who's got uh, depression and is on tamoxifen there are better antidepressant choices than paroxetine and I think one can make a strong argument for uh, transitioning gradually to a different agent Um, I would add that I think the same thing applies for fluoxetine even though in our study we, we didn't find a risk with fluoxetine. There's pretty good evidence from basic science data that fluoxetine also inhibits this enzyme. We didn't find a link between fluoxetine prescribing and breast cancer death. Uh, I suspect that has something to do with the fact that fluoxetine wasn't a terribly popular antidepressant. We didn't have a huge sample of of fluoxetine Mm -hmm. use. One other drug I might just add there is bupropion, another common antidepressant that we didn't look at. Um, Again, important that if someone does decide to change their antidepressant, it should be done gradually and you know, with the involvement of a physician. Now, as you said, there are going to be potentially other drugs that are affecting this particular uh, enzyme. Mm-hmm. And there are potentially other drugs that need this enzyme to become active. Are you doing any future research on, on that? Well, at the moment, we don't have... Uh, uh, any planned, but I can tell you that I think you've hit on an important point. Drugs that turn off this enzyme, you know, if they're, if they're used for a week or two you know, over the course of five years of tamoxifen therapy, that's not exactly a huge problem. Yeah. Uh, it's the drugs that are used for a long time. Uh, and so chronic therapies are ones that are particularly concerning here. Uh, and so I would highlight, um, you know, not just paroxetine and fluoxetine and bupropion, which is sometimes used as an antidepressant, sometimes used as a smoking cessation aid. Um, but there are some other drugs that aren't quite as common. Uh, amiodarone, which is an antiarrhythmic drug. Um, quinidine, another relatively uncommonly used antiarrhythmic drug, but some patients might still be on it. Um, Celecoxib or Celebrex is, uh, you know, got some inhibitory uh, capacity for this enzyme. Uh, so, and, and those drugs are typically used for long periods of time. So, although we have no present plans to study those things, um, 
uh, again, we may we may uh, develop such plans in the next uh, you know few months. But I think those are um, drugs that one could reasonably suggest um, have alternatives that are that are probably better in patients on tamoxifen. And that research paper is available for free online on bmj.com. Online is an analysis paper which looks at what the government can do to give children the best start in life. Duncan Jarvis talks to the paper's author, Clyde Hertzman. He is the director of the Human Early Learning Partnership in Canada and used to be the head of the Global Knowledge Hub on Early Child Development for the WHO Commission on the Social Determinants of Health. You've published an analysis paper that's gone online this week, which is talking about supporting early child development. Now, in your paper, you mentioned that there's this link between a child's early years and their later development. Could you elaborate a little bit on that? We have now, thanks largely to the work that's been done in Britain, a host of birth cohort studies, that is to say studies where children have been followed from birth through two, three, four, five, six, even seven decades of life, uh, which allow us to be able to tell the degree to which early development has a, an independent contribution to later health, well-being, learning, and behavior above and beyond the things that come after the early years. Mm-hmm. And so as a result of that now, we understand that conditions in early life and early trajectories, if you'd like, of physical, social, emotional, and language and cognitive development influence things like school failure, unwanted teen pregnancy, and criminality by the second decade of life, obesity, elevated blood pressure, and depression by the third and fourth decade, heart disease, diabetes, and other chronic diseases by the fifth and sixth decades of life, and by old age, uh, you know, premature aging and accelerated memory loss. So it really goes, it does affect your whole life after. That's right. That's right. It's not just a truism. It's an empirically demonstrated reality. As you said, there's some data come out of Britain on that. Is there anything from other countries that supports that? Yes, there is. Uh, There are a number of very good studies in the United States uh, and uh, some in in, uh, New Zealand as well. There's a a study in New Zealand in the uh, city of Dunedin, which is very good. So, yeah, the evidence primarily is UK, US and, uh, and New Zealand are the main studies we've been using. Uh, unfortunately, the, the Canadian studies are, are much more recent, so we're only about two decades in on them. Okay. Now, in research we've published before uh, in the BMJ, it's been shown that inequalities, um, which will obviously affect outcomes, seem to be really entrenched in society. Um, looking you know, back at historical data, same, same areas and you know, therefore same families and things seem to to still suffer from the same deprivation, despite government's efforts at intervention. Why is that? Why is this? Why is intervention not working? First off, if you do look historically at British data going back 100 years or so, you do see that, say, during World War II, the steepness of the socioeconomic gradient in health actually declined during that period of time where everybody was in the same boat and it was all hands on deck and, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Similarly, in Canada, uh, from 1971 to 1996, which was sort of the golden age of the Canadian welfare state, if you'd like, we saw the steepness of the socioeconomic gradient come down quite a bit uh, by about about half. It, it redu- reduced by about 
half. So there are there are places and times where the gradients do decline, and there are definitely variations in the steepness of, of gradients and socioeconomic inequality and health across the wealthy world. The problem seems to be, though, that the processes that bring about reduction in inequality are sort of slow-moving processes. They're kind of the long-term impact of policies, programs, and conditions that quite often take longer to play out than the politicians care to wait for. Hmm. And so, uh, you know, what will happen is is that the political regime, the economic regime, will change before, you know, the, the, the effects of those policies have entirely worked their way through. What yeah. are some of those development programs? Well, by and large, what we're talking about is a mixture of programs and policies to support development in the early years, that is to say from pre-birth to the time that children reach school age. Mm-hmm. What we know is is that wealthy countries, if they invest up to about 1.5% of their GDP in a combination of better prenatal care, better early monitoring of development, um, high-quality early learning and care programs, workplace flexibility programs for parents with young children, neighborhood strengthening programs that provide neighborhood access to programs and services and also counter-ghettoization effects and so forth, that those mixture together, if you do it right, can create the conditions whereby the fraction of children who reach school age behind where we'd like them to be on their development, let's say their physical, their social, emotional, or their language and cognitive development, can be brought down below 10%. And as it stands right now, in most of the wealthy countries of the world, we're not doing that in a systematic way. We're, and we end up with the fraction of kids who are vulnerable in their development more like 25 to 30%. Certainly in Canada, where we have population-based measurements, it's standing at, at 26% now. Two places that you mentioned as exemplar of how to support early child development are Sweden and Cuba. Now, these are both fairly sort of socialist societies. Do you think that's kind of a prerequisite for doing this kind of thing well? Well, if you'd asked me that question about five years ago, I would have said yes, but now I'm not going to say yes, because we've noticed a real change in the attitude of the business community uh, in a number of, of societies about the early years. That The idea that investment in the early years pays off during working lifetime in terms of growth of GDP mm-hmm. and, you know, as an investment in the competence of the labor force is really starting to catch on in the business community in, in many parts of the wealthy world. So with that, I think that there's going to be a shift and, and uh, it will be possible in more free market oriented societies for uh, there to be stronger programs and services in the early years. However, it is clear that if what one tries to do is mix the models together and tries to have um, uh, for-profit type programs in the early years, that those rarely deliver quality. Mm. So it will be a question of uh, the business community saying we have to extend public investment into the early years, just the same way that we're in favor of public investment for infrastructure and so forth, that this yeah. is like an infrastructure investment. So I think, I think we can get there. Um, you know, it is true that the proportion of GDP that must be spent on the early years needs to be more in the 1.5% range rather than in the 0.5 or 0.7% range, which is where it is in countries like the UK yeah. right now. 
Um, but it is possible to do that in the current environment without driving the proportion of GDP in public spending up to, you know, very, very high levels. Yeah, there's one other thing I think I'd like to say, and this is something I think that's very important for the sort of people who read the BMJ to understand, that with our new knowledge about the early years, a lot of what is being tried now is kind of evidence-based social change. An evidence-based social change isn't quite the same as doing a randomized trial of every individual program you do. Mm. If we succeed in relation to the early years, what will happen is a variety of investments will be made in health, in community, in early education, and so forth. And then what we would hope to see is the fraction of kids who are developmentally ready when they reach school age to go to go up. In other words, it's an awful lot like the campaign against cigarette smoking, where it's not as though you can point to any one intervention uh, to say that's the thing that brought adult smoking rates down. But nonetheless, we've seen a success in the last 20 years or so with a variety of schemes that involve increasing the price of cigarettes, reducing the places that you can smoke in, getting healthcare providers to insist that their patients stop smoking, etc., etc. So that, that's what we're into, is an era now of social change around the early years where the marker of whether or not we've, we've succeeded are broad indicators of the state of, of development in the early years. And again, that analysis paper is available online. That's all for this week. Next week we'll be finding out more about the provision of social care. Is there really going to be free care for the elderly in the UK? Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.